Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason, and Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from? And what comes next? Let's chat. Today, the table gets flipped, and I'm in the hot seat. This episode comes courtesy of our friends at the Spiritually Incorrect podcast, where I was interviewed about the Genealogies of Modernity project. I'm so impressed by Spiritually Incorrect. The two hosts, Jonathan Lionheart and Seth Hart, put a ton of work into each episode. This isn't your standard interview podcast. Not only do they do great interviews, but they also take the time to produce thoughtful and entertaining introductions to the interviews and then follow-up conversations among the hosts to digest the interview. They're really funny and they're thoughtful. So if you like what you hear, check it out, Spiritually Incorrect, on your podcast platform of choice. And now here's Jonathan and Seth, and a little bit later, yours truly. You likely have a cell phone in your pocket. You likely have a car. You've probably ridden on a plane. In a lot of ways, you are different from 99% of humans who've ever lived. You live in a world that's far more interconnected. You have the world at your fingertips and a wealth of information that would make the greatest kings of history envious. Welcome to the 21st century, a technological age. We've a long time ago dropped the things that we think were holding us back. Institutionalized religion controlling the state, medieval practices which held back the progress of science and technology, and a whole host of other things to create our glorious modern world. But statistically, as the world has gotten more prosperous, it hasn't gotten happier. In fact, Mental illnesses are skyrocketing. We have everything we could ever want, but seemingly lack the one thing we all need. Why is this the case? On today's episode, we ask, what's wrong with the modern world? Another episode of Spiritually Incorrect. On this week's episode, we have the bad boys of history, the invention of mountain climbing, and John's confession 
to being a closet teenaged white girl. I'm your host, Seth Hart. Joined with me is the closet teenaged white girl. Howdy! What? Isn't that what you wanted? Uh, I never want that. That's all you ever do. But but I'll live with it because at least you mixed it up with. Fine, that. I'll be a mountain climber. That's more you know instead of the going with the teenage white girl part of your introduction. I'm the mountain climber. John, you've lost so much weight recently. It looks like you've been mountain climbing. I say this as a compliment. I'm actually complimenting you on the show. I think it is very rude to comment on a teenage girl's weight. So, <laughs> but it's positive. I'm okay. uplifting you. You look good, honey. All right. You well, do you. <laughs> so what oh are we talking boy. about today? Why Why am I here? I dragged you away from your other, you know, high profile academic appointments in order to interview Ryan McDermott on the genealogy of modernity, the origin of the modern world. That's right. We have Ryan McDermott here today. You know this guy. You actually went to a conference of his in Pittsburgh, right? Yes, I did. So I went to the Genealogies of Modernity conference in Pittsburgh last month, uh, which was a wonderful conference uh, talking about modernity, uh, how we got to the modern world, deconstructing the narratives we tell about ourselves. It was a wonderful time. It was hosted by the Beatrice Institute, which is an ecumenical learning and research community in Pittsburgh, which was founded by da, 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 Ryan McDermott, who is our guest today. Ryan's an associate professor of medieval literature and culture at the University of Pittsburgh. He earned his PhD in English from the University of Virginia, as well as an MTS from Duke Divinity School. So we're excited to have him on here today to discuss what is wrong with the modern world. Yeah, that's kind of what we're discussing today. We got into a really high-level academic discussion, so buckle your seatbelts. This one's going to require of a thinking cap. But before we get into that, maybe... Let's uh let's do a little bit of groundwork and maybe define a few terms. What should we even start with? Well, we're talking about the modern world and we're going to keep using the term modernity. So maybe we should start by defining modernity. What's the traditional narrative of what modernity is? It's kind of funny. I feel like people know more about like postmodernity now. They've heard more postmodern stuff than they actually do about modern. But what is it post? It's what post-modern. what is <laughs> Yeah. Oh, it's just here and now, right? Well, no, like academically, modernity is supposed to be this period that started roughly 1500 AD. If you know your history pretty well, a lot of stuff's going on, then you have the discovery of the new world in 1492. So you have colonization going on. You have the Protestant Reformation in 1517. So now all of a sudden, Europe's fracturing, you have wars of religion, which would spawn things like the Enlightenment and stuff like that. You have the fall of the Eastern Roman Empire, which held out until 1453, which has caused a lot of other things to happen in Europe as well. So a lot of stuff is going on around 1500 AD that changed the world in ways that now kind of led all the way to us, to TikTok and fake news. Yeah, and I mean, at least the traditional narrative of modernity, which I hopefully we're going to deconstruct a bit on this episode, but the traditional narrative is that the modern age is one where science and progress and technology and medicine and society are all progressing upwards. Things are getting better. As we leave behind the medieval dark ages of religion and ignorance, we're stepping out into the bright light, the literal enlightenment of a rational, scientific, progressive, democratic, humanistic future. Yeah. yeah, I mean, th- this is the modern narrative. This is how modernity has crafted itself. It is 
the Enlightenment. It is an age of light looking back at those medieval religious dark ages and saying, thank God we've left those things behind and we're better now. But you still see it. You still see that in like movies, right? They portray the Middle Ages as terrible, disease-ridden war and all this sort of stuff. It's like, you know, even when we say something like that's positively medieval. Exactly. Yeah. What are you saying there? You mean it's awful. It's backward. It's horrible. Unlike us sophisticated modern people or postmodern people that's the story we we tell ourselves is that we we've gotten past that horrific age from like 500 <laughs> ad to like 1500 yeah and i love that you said the positively medieval thing because this these types of assumptions appear all the time whenever someone says something barbaric someone might respond how can you possibly believe that in 2023 and the assumption there is of course that we have now progressed that this year is so far along in the the history of the human species that you should have figured things out by now because the past was dark and ignorant and dumb, but we are progressing further upward into the light and truth and scientific reason and away from ignorance. So in 2023, you should have left behind those stupid, ignorant beliefs. The current year acts as a critique, which is so weird. It's 2023 and you leave it there as if that's somehow a criticism. Yeah, to simply be contemporary and not in the past is a compliment. It, we, we have we've made this narrative where we are better socially, scientifically, in all these areas. We've progressed past the past. And so history has a direction. It's going upward. It's getting better. Yeah, we're framing this as if we're going to like delve really deep into this. But what we're doing is just kind of setting up what modernity is. And we're going to talk about the stories we tell ourselves, where those came from, and how modern scholarship is beginning to sort of tear that apart. And Ryan, in his work with what's called the genealogies of modernity, we'll talk about what a genealogy is. It's just basically, it's like a family history, but for all of Western culture. How he has basically come to see how so much of this has been driven by certain theological decisions, by certain decisions within actually the theological academy, which has framed our understanding of how we see ourselves. And then maybe some possible step forwards for how do we correct this? You know, we see ourselves as so distinct from the past that we as modern people, is that right? What are we going to do with that? So this, that's kind of where we jump into. Exactly. And the Genealogies of Modernity Project is a huge deal if you haven't heard about it. They've got journals, they've got conferences. As I said, I was at one of these conferences recently presenting, and they also have their own podcast with the Beatrice Institute, as well as a podcast series that they're releasing this coming fall, where they do a bunch of really in-depth, deep dives into these questions about modernity and genealogies of modernity. So make sure to check those out as well. Just not Jonathan's contribution. Definitely avoid that one. Yeah, my contribution was on the origins of modern gun violence in America, Seth. They're going to love it. They thought, ooh, American gun violence. Who can we get to to talk about this? Let's get a large Canadian guy who's never Yours shot a gun before. Yours was on Henry Moore. Yours was on no, Henry Moore. No, it wasn't. Mine I'm was on... looking at it right now, John. That's my journal article. My presentation at the Genealogies of Modernity Conference was on the origin of American gun violence, Seth. Oh, oh, yeah. I'm sure that was just brilliant. Yeah, they thought, let's get a Canadian who's never shot a gun before to critique us on you our shot views a gun. of guns. I've been there. I have photos. 
Yeah, but that was when you forced me to. That's like one time. And the whole point was, Jonathan, you never shot a gun. You can't say you've never shot a gun. You cannot okay. say that. You took me to a gun range once because you couldn't believe I'd never had a, held a gun before. Fine. That is one of the funniest stories ever. You literally, I held- What's held hilarious is that I just told a, a story, a narrative, a genealogy of who I am, an account of me as a Canadian who's never held a gun before. And that was significant to my understanding of myself and my identity and the types of power moves I was trying to make in this conversation. And Seth just deconstructed that genealogy by saying, actually, when we look back at the history, Jonathan, you have shot a gun one time. Yeah. And it devastated me, Seth. You what? devastated my genealogy and I will never forgive you. Yeah, nearly as devastatingly hilarious at that time I handed you the gun and you held it like it was a ticking time bomb, even though there was no ammo in it and the bolt was open. Well, I love that this has taken a detour into guns because what is more modern than bullets, tanks, guns, and warfare? I mean, uh, the whole- How about a podcast that actually gets started? Well, thank you so much for being here, Dr. McDermott. Could we maybe start by just you giving us your sort of academic history and background and a, a sense of how all of this led to the genealogies of modernity project? Well, I, I mean, I always, I was an English major and I loved English literature. I went to a small evangelical college in Santa Barbara, California called Westmont, but I, I really always wanted to study religion and literature. And it sort of gradually dawned on me that I didn't know much about religion, despite the fact that I had grown up evangelical, didn't know much about Christian history. And I wanted to write about Flannery O'Connor. And I would read Flannery O'Connor's letters and realize, wow, like she knows a lot more about theology than, than I do. So I need to get a theology education. So I went, I went to Duke Divinity School, did a master's of theological studies there. And really, at the, at the end of my undergrad, I was equally fascinated by literary theory as I was by literature itself. You know, this was in the late 90s, in many ways, the heyday of continental theory with a capital T. And, you know, we were undergrads reading people like Jacques Derrida and even people who kind of were more coming on the scene in the United States at the time, like Emmanuel Levinas with a kind of ethical approach to literature. And so I was fascinated by those theoreticians who were really, I came to discover later, philosophers. Um, <laughs> you know, it was, and so it was like, at the same time, at an evangelical college, you were being told really from almost every quarter, except for the rare like English professor, that these were the high priests of atheism, people like Derrida. And you know, I was I was an English major though, so that didn't scare me. <laughs> but like I was like, yeah, well, maybe I'll be an atheist then. Uh, you know, but it was only then when I you know did a theology education and and especially when I got to the University of Virginia for my PhD in literature and encountered people like like Kevin Hart who were Christian theologians in their own right and also engaging deeply with that French continental German sort of that one branch of kind of Frenchified Hegelianism, engaging with this that, you know, I realized that, wow, there actually is profound theological sensitivity and, and insight here. But at the same time, there are a lot of wrong turns. And that's where you get these theologians coming out of Cambridge, most of them students of Rowan Williams, people like 
John Milbank and Catherine Pickstock and Graham Ward, who were engaging these you know recent thinkers and making a lot of the same sophisticated philosophical moves, but saying, you know, the Christian theological tra tradition can out-narrate your traditions of suspicion, your various Heideggerian or post-Hegelian moves. And that was thrilling to me, that radical orthodoxy movement, you know, coming along and, and saying, we can go back in, in history and we can show, we can show a narrative that reveals your nihilism and so on. So let me fire a real quick question at you. Just before we start with anything about genealogies of modernity or critiques of modernity, maybe we should ask, what is modernity? Yeah, so that's a question that we are trying to uproot through the, the podcast series that, that we're working on, that you, Jonathan, were, were involved in. In our recent conference, um, we're going to have eight narrative episodes coming out. Uh, this fall, and uh, each of them tells a story, a, a kind of well-known or maybe not so well-known story about what it means to be modern. Um, and then we challenge that that narrative through recent research. And I think the best way to uproot it is, you know, we have an episode called "What Is Modernity," and this there's this scholar of ancient Chinese philosophy, religion, and culture. His name is Michael Pewitt. He's at Harvard. And he says, modernity has always been around. It's a way of talking and making a claim about our relationship to the past. And he can identify in, you know, third century BC China, people making modernity claims. And by that, he means you can kind of claim modernity in two ways. The first way is that you can say that the past has no bearing on the present. We don't have ancestors. We have complete control over who we are. We have complete control over our genealogy and nothing that came before us conditions what we can now do. And so that's one way of making a modernity claim. And then the second one is to say, yes, the past has bearing on us. We have ancestors, but in fact, the past has been leading up to us and everything in the, that's good in the past culminates in us and everything that we now think and do, anything that was bad in the past, we have superseded, we've progressed beyond it, and now we are able to live in a perpetual present. And so both of those versions actually say we are now able to live in a perpetual present. We have overcome all of the challenges, the struggles of the past, the vicissitudes of the past, and we can now live in an age of eternal peace. And that is what is called modernity. What you're saying there is, is that this is the way that a lot of people, especially maybe within the academic realm, in a way, see the current moment in time? I think so. I, I would say not so much maybe in the humanities, but uh, Barack Obama's favorite book, at least as of like 2015, was Steven Pinker's Enlightenment Now. And he's a evolutionary psychologist at Harvard. Uh, it was a best-selling book. Bill Gates like talked about it. And this is someone who's saying that you know, indeed, we have overcome most of the challenges of the past, those things that we haven't overcome. We have the technology, we have the technocracy, we have the like democratic systems in place to overcome them. And we are just on the path to a, a new phase of, of human history. So I guess what you're saying is that in the last maybe 300 years or so, Western society started to describe itself as modern. 
because we thought we were doing social, technological, medical, these types of progressions. But every single time period has claimed that for itself is kind of what you're saying. Every time period has seen itself right. as the modern age, as the ones who have kind of made the progressive leap and have transcended their past and become better and moved forward. So what does it mean for us in the sort of Western world to say that about ourselves? Does it mean anything more than other ages and times have meant? Is that kind of what you're getting here? Yeah, and I, you know, I wouldn't want to say that every time period ha has made these claims, but throughout human history, as far as we know it, we can always point to movements in any era that are making these kinds of claims. But yeah, then I, I think though it's you know we have gotten to a point where I can walk around as I did for this podcast with a microphone, walk around the University of Pittsburgh, and you know put a microphone in, in front of students and say, "What does it mean to be modern?" And they know what that question means, whereas I don't think, I mean, I can imagine pretty much any question that comes from a, you know, humanities idiom, most of them would, you know, 99.9% .9 of the questions I could think of would be unintelligible to your average, like engineering or nursing student, which is like primarily the people I, I interviewed because I happen to be on that part of campus. So there is something that is just a default bedrock understanding of being in the present that has, you know, that modernity now describes for the vast majority of American, at least middle-class college students. Before we get into deconstructing that narrative of modernity, could you maybe give us a little bit more on what the stereotypical account of modernity has been? Because we all seem to have this sense, like you said, of the students, you know, if you ask a student, what does it mean to be in the modern age? They have this assumption of what that is. And I know your project's deconstructing a lot of that, but what is being deconstructed? What's the stereotype narrative of what Western modernity was so that we can at least understand what it is we're deconstructing? Well, a lot of these are like, they're legitimate. Uh, there's nothing wrong in actual fact about them. And one example of that would just be, you know, pace of technological change over the last three years. You know, the acceleration has just been profound. That's one of the first things that, that students tend to go to. You know, I think if given, you know, some more time to reflect, you get a cluster of ideas around secularization and freedom that as the world has developed industrially, there has been a concomitant decline in religious faith, and that has somehow resulted in greater freedom. A lot of these are going to be are going to be intertwined. But you know, those those are just a couple examples. And and really like, can we say that there has been a marked secularization or a retreat of religious practice and faith in the developed West? I think yes, that's demonstrably true. Can we say that there has been Meanwhile, an industrialization, yes, demonstrably true. Can we say at the same time that there has been an increase in, let's say, freedom as defined by libertarianism? Yes, demonstrably true. Now, is it true that those three things all go together and that they are mutually causative and supportive? No, I don't think that is demonstrably true, right? But and yet in the popular imagination, those things, you know, get mixed up and any other possible definition of freedom gets sidelined. And so it's just freedom from, freedom from constraint rather than freedom for, freedom for the good, freedom for flourishing, and so on. 
So we've talked a lot about modernity, but what is a genealogy? I think most people, when they hear that, they probably get sort of the wrong idea. Yeah. So I think this is actually like a far more interesting question than than what is modernity, because I think it gets us into the problems, the challenges, and the promises of thinking about the past that modernity narratives obscure. And so genealogy in its most basic sense is descent with modification. That's actually Darwin's definition of evolution, which he originally called genealogy. Um, He didn't like the language of evolution. He thought it sounded too progressive. And he was adamant that, you know, evolution is not progress, but eventually he he gave in because that's the language that everybody else was using. So descent with modification, descent over generations. And so with each generation, you get some change and then you also get continuity. And so in the academic humanities, genealogy has been applied in various ways as an analogy to understand history, to understand the past, because what is history? It's change over time. And there's always going to be continuities that descend as we pass through time. But one of the beautiful things about genealogy as a master analogy for thinking about the past, as opposed to history, is that it enables us to understand the weight of the past, because we always inherit from previous generations. Nowadays, we can think about this genetically. We can think that we inherit genes, you know, gen- uh, DNA, genetic material. But then, of course, we think about it. You know, we can think about it psychologically. The things that you you get from your parents, the things you have to deal with from your parents, and and so on. And that's something that the analogy of history, which is you know based on that root of story, doesn't necessarily convey because uh, a story can begin as it often does in medias race in the middle of things. And a story, what is a story? Well, it has characters who make decisions, act, and through their action, engage in and often resolve a conflict. And so in story, you don't, there's very much an emphasis on the will and on the individual. Whereas genealogy, I I would say, prioritizes um, what it is that we don't have control over. And I could say more about the various options of using genealogy as an analogy, but I'll just stop there to see if that requires clarification. Yeah, so let me ask this then. You brought up Foucault and a few other thinkers who've utilized genealogy, and this is apparently something scholars do all the time. How exactly are they using genealogies in their scholarship? If we're going to have a genealogy of modernity, how is a genealogy of modernity functioning in these scholarly accounts? Well, you know, so you know, a great example from Foucault is that uh, is that he does this big study of the invention of the mental hospital or the, you know, the psychological institution. And he shows how, to put it very simply, he shows how it wasn't the case that there were a bunch of mentally ill people who needed these psychiatric hospitals. And so they were then invented by these caring doctors wielding a new science of healing. Rather, it was that these doctors who were inventing a new psychological science started labeling people as psychiatrically disordered, created these institutions, institutionalized them, and that's how we get you know, the birth of the psychiatric clinic. And so, he, so what he's doing is he's going back to this origin story, he's flipping it on its head and, and saying that you know, psychiatry invented the crazy person. 
the mad person. And that there was actually prior to modern psychiatry, modern psychology, every you know culture across human history has had ways of actually integrating the mentally ill and caring for them. And that psychiatric institutions are ways to marginalize those people. And in many cases, provide much worse care for them than a, a more organic community could. So that, that would be a kind of gene, a suspicious critical genealogy that shows an ignoble origin for an institution that had claimed a noble origin. And the analogy that Foucault is using there is, you know, very well attested. Um, and you can think of it, you know, if you, you yourself or your relatives have used Ancestry.com and you've constructed your own genealogy, often what, what happens is people use their genealogy to go back far enough where they can find a noble ancestor and they're like, okay, done. <laughs> our, our family tree includes nobility. Or, or even if it's not proper nobility, it's like my family has this illustrious ancestor who was a, essentially a terrorist for the Irish Republican Army and resisted the, the British and for that was imprisoned and tortured and barely recovered and then fled to America. And that's sort of an origin story. And uh, if you romanticize the IRA, that's a wonderful noble origin story. But then you could imagine somebody else going back and showing like exactly what was, what was involved in being a member of the IRA at that time. And that, you know, that would be a counter critical genealogy. I was just watching an Everybody Loves Raymond episode where the Barone family says that they have this noble Italian heritage going back to the famous Barones family in Italy. And then later in the episode, you discover that actually when they got to America as immigrants, you know, 100 years earlier, they stole someone else's last name to try to seem like they had this noble past. Yeah. And so yeah. Like these, it's, it's, we, we all have these mythologies of the past. Yeah. But just for our younger <laughs> listeners, everybody loves Raymond is this ancient, unheard of <laughs> sitcom. It's a noble from, heritage. That your, that your grandpa and great grandpa probably watched. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, but, yeah, but what you tell about your family's background really situates who you are today. It's the narrative you tell yourself to legitimate who you are and all of and to locate yourself. And it's the same thing with history. What your culture and society and how the West constructs its past determines how it sees itself and acts today. That's absolutely right. And but so here's how so the academic humanities have taken this analogy and they have only run it in that way, in that critical, suspicious way. But there are other ways of thinking genealogically about the past that are actually, I think, restorative, reconciling, creative. And so this is what we've come to call in the, in the podcast series, creative genealogy. And an example of this that is featured in one of these forthcoming episodes is Ancestry.com actually was not the first company to, or uh, in 23andMe, were preceded by seven years to offer consumer-facing DNA ancestry testing. And the, the first company that did that is called African Ancestry, Inc., I think it's called. And it was headed up by this geneticist at um, Howard University. And, and so he began offering direct-to-consumer DNA testing to Black Americans. And this served this amazing purpose because slavery, it's a iron curtain to genealogy, to doing your family history, because it was actually like one of the systematic efforts that was made was to cancel out the past history, uh, family history, 
and to replace it with an economic history, a history of ownership. So like imagine that that first kind of modernity claim that we talked about, which is cancel out the past, claim it never existed, that it doesn't have any bearing on us. Like what stronger of a modernity claim can you make than the institution of slavery in the Americas was making about people's family history? And so what this DNA testing allows people to do is to trace their family back at least to localize to a particular part of Africa. And what has come in the wake of that is that African states have been reciprocating this interest. And so one story we tell is about this um, American actor named Isaiah Washington, who was an early consumer of these DNA testing and located his ancestry in modern day Sierra Leone. And the Sierra Leonean government actually provided a legal pathway for Isaiah Washington and then now many other people who can demonstrate DNA ancestry to citizenship, Sierra Leonean citizenship. And so you can now, if you have one of these tests, you can go to Sierra Leone, you can go through a citizenship ceremony. And this is you know, a way to re-identify with a lost past, with, with a violently erased past, and to, to actually like form a new creative but uh, historically authentic identity. And so this would this is an example, you know, a very literal example of how genealogy can operate creatively and to create new beginnings. So let's bring this into a genealogy of modernity. What have you been doing to sort of creatively reimagine how we got here? Yeah, so I didn't really like have this in mind when I did my first book project, but I've as I've reflected on it, I've realized my early research in medieval literature and biblical studies was actually a great example of creative genealogy. And so my first book is a your listeners might not be familiar with the four senses of scripture, but for most of Christian history, um, interpreters have followed Jesus in his exegesis of the Jonah story. When Jesus says that Jonah going down and spending three days in the belly of the whale and then coming out again prefigured Jesus's own death and resurrection. And so that what came to be known as an allegorical reading, the way that the Old Testament prefigures the not just symbolically, but really prefigures the life of Christ and and things that are fulfilled in the, in the New Testament. And then there's also a moral significance to that. Jesus says, essentially, don't be like Jonah, be like the Ninevites. Uh, when you see this sign, um, repent. And so that's that's the moral reading of scripture, the way that you apply what happened in history, you apply it in your own life. And the medieval term for that is tropology. And so I did a study of this application of biblical narrative in your own life and the way that medieval literary scholars were taking that injunction to apply the Bible in your own life and creating literature out of it, biblical literature. Now, why is this important to a genealogy? Well, when you, you know, in the past three decades, there's been a resurgence in biblical studies of theological literary criticism. And so in biblical studies, criticism had come to be dominated by 
a kind of historical science that gives us things like the Jesus Seminar, which casts uh, their votes for the authenticity of Jesus's words with little colored beads and, you know, gives us this highly suspicious version of the New Testament or of the Gospels. And that scientific approach to the history of the Bible has come to be seen by you know, many scholars in the past three decades is extremely limited, you know, very modern, and closing down a theological understanding of the Bible or a spiritual understanding that would allow us to read the sign of Jonah allegorically, to read the sign of Jonah uh, morally, as Jesus himself did. And so the one account of how this happened was that in the late Middle Ages, in the universities, the faculty, which used to be the, the faculty of sacred scripture, got split up into a faculty of theology, philosophy, and scripture studies. And so when the three of these disciplines came out on their own and became autonomous, they disintegrated. There was a kind of, imagine this in genealogical terms as a divorce of these disciplines. That's what created the way for historical biblical studies to go off on its own become detached from and even antagonistic to theology and philosophy. So that's a story that is very prominent. The mid-20th century Catholic theologian Henri de Lubac tells this in Medieval Exegesis. On the Protestant side of things, Peter Lighthart has a wonderful book that kind of narrates this, this coming apart, and many other scholars have told us. There's a lot of truth in that. Now, what I show is that in the early Reformation, many reformers were using tropological or moral interpretation of scripture to maintain the unity of theology, philosophy, and, and history in biblical studies. But the only reason I was able to see this is because of recent scholars like Richard Hayes in the Protestant world and um, Scott Hahn in the Catholic world, uh, these biblical scholars who have come along and said, hey, we can actually restore allegorical interpretation. We can actually restore tropological interpretation. And you see in many biblical studies faculties that these things are being restored in the curriculum and so on. And so I see this as an example of growing. So there was a divorce a long time ago. There was a rupture in the family history, but enough time has passed so that some of those ideological disputes have quieted down and we are distant enough genealogically for a new marriage to happen, a new union to happen of the disciplines of theology and biblical studies, and create a, a kind of a resurgence of theological interpretation of scripture. And I would see that as a creative genealogy. So kind of going off of that, then do you locate still that there was some sort of rupture with these universities divorcing? even though there were later yeah. interpreters who did that. So that still is part of the narrative. Yes, it's definitely still part of the narrative, yeah. So then, did we just bring them back together and everything's a-okay? Is modernity fixed? Have we, have we, <laughs> throw our hands up, we're done. We fixed the world. Well, I mean, it's it's probably no, but it's, at least it's like, how often do you hear like the good news <laughs> that maybe something could be repaired? Not often. The world, we, we, we know a lot of things that are wrong with the world. We don't have a lot of solutions being offered right now. Yeah, so actually, so there's this beautiful medieval version of genealogy called a tree of consanguinity. And instead of being like a family tree with individuals in it, it's a chart that you then plug your own family history into. And the, and the chart stays the same. It's shaped like a Christmas tree. And the purpose of it is not to demonstrate continuity and proximity to say like, oh, I'm close enough to inherit 
from my great grandfather um or oh i'm close enough so that i you know deserve citizenship of you know in the eu the purpose rather is to demonstrate distance and difference sufficient distance and difference that you could marry a cousin without <laughs> without contravening the incest taboo <laughs> So as you, you know, you may have, you might have heard that, you know, you're not supposed to marry cousins. Where does, where does that come from? Well, now we have like some genetic answers. Like you don't want your kids to have a pigtail or something like that. Right. But really like this was very serious in the European middle ages. And until 1215, the taboo went up to the sixth degree of separation. And so what these trees of consanguinity do is you plug your relations in and you see, you know, seven degrees different from each other. And if we are, then we can get married. And so what that's doing is it's it's actually genealogy becomes a lens through which to identify when there's enough distance and difference in order to create a new beginning, a new union. See, I want a pigtail. That sounds awesome. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, look, it's your bacon boy. Like it's... <laughs> sounds John, this says a lot about your psychology more than anything else. <laughs> I just have a very culinary imagination, I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, that's one explanation, I suppose. Do you mind if we do a little bit of historical myth busting while we have you? We could try it, but I'm like, I'm not a historian. So, you know, we, 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 let's see. That'll make it more entertaining. So. <laughs> well, one of the things is that it, what you talked about, like this narrative of progress, right? That's in, in a way, the Middle Ages were the Middle Ages. They, they were a break between two great periods of progress. Sure. And I still have students, undergraduate students, who buy into that sort of narrative. Is that really true? And in these genealogies of modernity, what do you have to say to these sorts of ideas that are coming out? Yeah, what, were the Dark Ages really dark and the Enlightenment really light? Yeah, I, so, I mean, I, it, dep it, it obviously depends on what domain of life you're looking at. So where would be the easiest place to, like, bust a myth? I, You know, I think for, well, I don't know, I, I'm not sure... Not talking about the Middle Ages, but talking about American religious history, I, I do think that for a lot of evangelicals, there's this sense that, you know, America was once a Christian nation. It's not anymore. And you look back to like a golden age of the Great Awakening and these giants and really inventors of evangelicalism like Jonathan Edwards. And, and you say, wow, like that was what America used to be. But if you actually look at the data we have on like church attendance, uh, which is actually remarkably good. So what was the Great Awakening and Awakening from? It was an awakening from a pretty profound lack of faith and practice among the American citizenship. And then it like reverts. So the, the actual low point in American church attendance, I just saw this recently and I'm going to get the date wrong, but it was like 1880, 1890, something like that, was the low point and the high point in American church attendance is post-World War II. And then it has been downhill since then, but we're, we're still not even at the low point that was achieved in like 1880 or 1890. So, I mean, I think that's maybe that's the kind of thing where we want to look back and just really gain some historical perspective. Well, that's fascinating. Are there any other sort of myths that you've uncovered through all of this that you, that you found really fascinating? So one where I feel like I've actually done some like original research or at least synthesized other people's original research is, you know, a not very well-known narrative of modernity, but one that I think once you hear it, you'll many people will recognize it. And that is that mountain climbing and rock climbing is a modern like invention or at least a modern accomplishment. Like one of the great 
pre kind of landing on the moon, one of the great achievements of humanity was the conquest of Everest. You know, the New York Times front page said Everest conquered. But then when you look, when, when you actually look back through like archaeological records and like even prehistoric non-literate cultures, we find all of these examples of pre-modern people climbing mountains for various reasons. And one of the original moments of modernity, which many 19th century scholars pointed to as like the invention of the modern man, was when the Italian, 14th century Italian humanist Francesco Petrarch climbed Mont Ventoux in the French Alps in order to like see what he could see from the top. And they were like, this is the first person, you know, who's ever, you know, climbed a mountain just because he was curious. And the implication was that he was the first person to climb Mont Ventoux. Now we go back and we see we have like pre-Roman ruins, like archaeological evidence of sort of sun god rituals that were being performed in prehistoric kind of Holocene era human culture up there at the top of Mont Ventoux. So people have been going up there for a very long time. But what has changed is this sense that people start thinking that makes them different from everybody and better than everybody who came before that, you know, they kind of superseded it. In the case of Everest, yes, that's true. Like those were the first people to make it to the top of Mount Everest. But that's just modernity going on hyperdrive with its, you know, technology. This has all been great. Are there any parting words you'd want to give to someone who might have found this interesting and maybe wants to take a next step in discovering how we see ourselves in the modern world? Well, we do have a great active online journal called Genealogies of Modernity, the journal. And uh, the attempt there in most of the pieces, they're short, they're about a thousand words. And the attempt is to get academics out of their disciplinary jargon, talking to a broader audience about wide range of of topics across the disciplines. So that's fun. And then obviously we have this narrative podcast coming out where we'll talk about some of the stories that that I touched on today. Awesome. Thanks so much for being with us again. So you have your regular podcast, but also this series in your podcast specifically focusing on the genealogies of modernity. And that's coming out in October. Is that right? Yes, I do believe. Yep. Yep. And the other one is uh the G, uh, the Beatrice Institute podcast, but it's not nearly as good as as the podcast you're currently listening to because these guys do such a great job of actually synthesizing the conversations, processing them, breaking them down for you, and making them fun. And we're not very good at that over at the Beatrice Institute podcast. We have a lot to learn from. So thanks thanks for the opportunity to be on here. Thank you for that. We might move that up to the front of the podcast. There you go. Make sure everyone <laughs> that. We're gonna we're gonna play that on repeat. That'll just be in a loop for an hour. Great. <laughs> Thanks again. So, John, you want to go mountain climbing now? I already mountain climb. I was born on these mountains, Seth. You are a mountain. Oh, yeah, I'm a mountain. You're like, what, six foot, I don't know, 13? All you need to know is that I am your infinite superior. I, I love that you jump from that to that. Okay, so what did you think, John? Anything that stuck out to you is particularly interesting? I, I think it's always interesting when we're reframing the narratives we tell ourselves. The narrative that the modern world has really bought into is as medieval religion disappeared, we got science and progress and technology and medicine and social advances and all of this type of stuff. But I think it's it's great that there are people out there saying, actually, no, we had a lot of those things in other time periods advancing in comparable ways. 
the medieval period wasn't really the Dark Ages. Historians aren't calling it the Dark Ages anymore precisely because it actually had a lot of good light things about it. And this narrative of modernity that we tell ourselves of, of becoming modern and enlightened, literally the enlightenment is very much a self-serving Western ethnocentric view of things. Yeah. That just makes us feel better about the world we've created. There's actually a book, I think, by Seb Falk recently called like The Light Ages, which tries to reframe basically saying there were no dark ages. These were great periods of progress and science and intellectual understanding, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> what I think is so interesting, though, is he hits the nail on the head is what makes us modern is the, the idea that we are modern, that we somehow transcended. And it's what's really funny is, is that if you look back through, you know, modernity starts, give or take 1580. That's when historians mark and say the Middle Ages are over. Now we're in the modern age. And what sort of sets that off? The Renaissance, the Renaissance. Yeah, it, it sets it off. And it's like, what is the Renaissance? Well, it's the rebirth, right? We are different from the previous era. <laughs> but what are they rebirthing? <laughs> They're rebirthing the classical era, right? So, and it sort of, it acts as a transition, right? Because they see themselves as different from the past, but not all the past. But then, you know, what's the, what comes after the Renaissance? The Enlightenment. Yeah. The Enlightenment so oh, well, we're, we're doing it again. We're the real different ones. <laughs> we're the ones that are reclaimed, that are truly enlightened. And then what comes after that? I mean, romanticism. Romanticism. Which is like, we're... no, 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 you guys were off. You forgot something and we're going to reclaim that. And then, of course, after that, you get sort of this, you know, late modern uh, 20th century stuff, which is this scientific, you know, well, mindset. Yeah. And, and literally in the 19th century, you had Hegel who thought that he was the culmination of history and the arrival of everything that mattered. Like not even his culture, but him as an individual. But then positivism comes along and says, no, 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 you guys were all wrong. We are the birth of the true philosophy. Everything you've been doing before is, was meaningless. And some parts of positivism adopted August Comte's idea that they're the third final stage of human history, this evolutionary yeah. account. And now we have post-modernity, which is Doing the exact same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Even as it deconstructs it, it's it's still thinking. It, it's still assumed that somehow they're it's getting post. somewhere. That it's post modernity. Yeah, <laughs> we we've gone beyond it, and it's it's interesting. I mean, the same these you couch that in very philosophical abstract language, but the same thing occurs on a very popular level. Nineteen sixties civil rights movement, feminism were evolving we're progressing society's getting better and then you know it reoccurs in the 90s when we think that oh we're progressing again with this more sexual rights and these types of things and then it reoccurs in the 2010s when it's like okay now we're going to make progress for black rights and transgender rights and all of these things and each stage of history thinks that it's the one that's finally progressing and that everyone before it was blind or dark or dumb and every state thinks that way even like modern like esoteric beliefs like when you come to like new age and stuff like that it's a new age it's adopted this modern framework that we are on the cusp of something great we are the different ones that have transcended the past Every generation thinks that way. They're almost like secularized eschatologies, whereas... Well, it is. Uh, Christians... It, yeah, like, whereas Christians were constantly like, the world's gonna end in our time. 
any day now, Christ is coming back. And they've been saying that every day for 2000 years. The secular equivalent is history has ended with us. Like progress has finally arrived now that we have guns and tanks and planes and computers and phones. Well, you see this with like the language of don't be on the wrong side of history. Yeah. History is cited, the right side being in the future. You know, even if this sounds like a critique, but it's Martin Luther King. He says the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. It's still reflecting this mm. belief in progress. And you're right. It is an eschatology. Eschatology is like a doctrine of in things in Christianity. And it's particularly, I think it's derived from, this comes from a scholar called Michael Burdett. I think it comes from a post-millennial eschatology, which isn't popular today, but was popular a while back, which is this idea that the world is getting better and that the church is winning. It's spreading around the world. And people are all going to become Christian and we're going to have better justice. We're going to have, there's going to be less poor people and on and on and on. And eventually it's going to usher in the thousand year kingdom of Christ. A thousand year strike. No, not quite. <laughs> a different, a different kingdom. You can leave now. <laughs> I wasn't saying it pro it. I'm just saying. You just saying. compared Christ's kingdom to the third Reich. No, but I think the point is that. I think whether it's in the Christian context or the secular context or whatever context it is, you're going to adopt this language of the coming kingdom or empire, you know, whether that's the Nazis inaugurating a thousand years of their reign, or that's Hegel ending history, or that's the way that people have adopted evolutionary language, or like whatever it is, people are going to adopt it into their framework because we can't just be an insignificant blip on the radar. We have to be the culmination of history that all previous things have been pointing toward and leading to upwards. Did, did I redeem myself or am I just a Nazi? You're a Nazi. You're absolutely a Nazi. I'm switching not a topics. Nazi. Just to clarify, Very, not a Nazi. Just to kind of change our topic a little bit. I do love that modernity seems to be nearly, you can't defeat it. Because anytime you try to defeat it, you're just playing into its narrative, right? Because you're saying, I am something that's superseding modern, and I am the truth, whereas the prior, <laughs> prior era is false. That makes sense? Yeah, so you, yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Modernity stepped back from the medieval era and said, okay, that was horrible. Now we've figured things out. But if you want to do that to modernity, step back from modernity and say, okay, modernity was off. Now I've figured things out. You're essentially making the same step yourself, which is to step outside of history and think that you've somehow transcended it all. And, and no, I think it's, it's really interesting. You might not be making the same pitfalls as modernity, but you're still assuming that you've transcended the historical process somehow. And that's, yeah, it's hilarious. Yep. You, that's the quintessentially modern thing yep. that you're doing precisely when you think you're not this doing it. This is why postmodernity is just another form of modernity. When people talk about the postmodern and overcoming the modern, which we, we, you know, John and I both learned in Bible college and our undergraduate, it's just more modernity. It's just more of the modern. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, post I don't know. modern. It's framed. <laughs> the very language of it is postmodern. It, yeah. it, it, it assumes the narrative, right? It assumes, it, it yeah. critiques the past but, for its, its, its ignorance and tries to place itself as sort of beyond history. Yeah. yeah. And, and precisely because modernity did that by saying it was right and everyone else was wrong, post-modernity is trying to then say no one's right, or at least some defenders of post-modernity are trying to say no one's right and no one's wrong. But inevitably, 
in order to still be post the modern, you do have to say they were wrong in that in some way, or else you're not post them at all. And this, I mean, this is difficult because as soon as I try to characterize what postmodernity is, you commit the sin that it's against, which is generalizing it into uh, a specific category. And so like, I, it's it's really hard to even have this conversation, but yeah. well, again, it's against meta narratives. Meta narrative is this overarching story. Postmodernity, by one of its big advocates, is defined as a, a denial of giant overall history. It's called meta narrative story that subsumes all other stories within it. Right. So this is the story of history, starting from the beginning, leading to now. That's a meta narrative. Right. It's every other story, your story, the story of all the nations fit into the single story, whether that be the story of progress or whatever, what what have you. And yeah. it critiques modernity because the moderns were just like that. They they had these whole grandiose stories of progress, usually located within the Western European culture. And it, it critiques that, saying that's just one perspective. Look at all these other perspectives. They're all different meta narratives, but we have no reason for privileging one over the other. The problem is, is that is a meta narrative. <laughs> that that yeah, what I just told you is a meta narrative. Is this is what we've been doing, and this is the story that defines all stories. The all the other stories subsumed within it. So postmodernity, in that sense, it's still modern. I'm not. It's not even a critique of it. It's just to recognize that it's still modern. It's still playing well, it, with it, it, the, the the same tools that it tries to overcome. Yeah. No. For sure. So, I mean, we've been talking a lot about big things like modernity and broader genealogies, but let's let's make it narrow. Like, what's a specific genealogy of modernity that we don't like? Science and religion. Science and religion. That's, yeah, some uh, so, genius on the podcast came on and just absolutely criticized our entire understanding of science and religion. Who was that again? That that absolutely brilliant thinker. I don't recall a genius coming on, but a a, a dope who was already here was you. Uh, and that episode's I, doing all right. It's doing pretty good. Is it? Yeah. Uh, our science and religion at war. Go back and listen to that if you're interested. Uh, but the basic premise of that episode was that, you know, we have this inherited modern narrative that science and religion are enemies. The church enslaved and enchained Galileo and didn't let him speak. And every time science tried to progress, religion held it back and faith and reason are inherently opposed. And that's a modern narrative that as progress in the sciences progresses, religion will decrease and secularism will rise. But there's tons of other ways to frame that history that doesn't buy into that particular genealogy of how we got the modern world, such as Seth, attack, go, science boy. Oh, science. Yeah. Well, go back and listen to that episode. That's my full on hour and a half. <laughs> That's your full pitch. That's my full yeah. pitch. I, that gets us another view. I think another one is that, you know, as secularism rises, religion decreases, which is true in some contexts, but it's not in other contexts. But even in America, you know, the U.S. and the Western Europe, where there has been a decline in religion as secularism has risen, there's been sort of like weird surrogates of religion that have come in and taken its spot, usually hyper individualistic to a lot of extent. But there's even like these new corporate things that people get together. They're not religions, but they they function like religions and i have a few so you get you get like wiccans and new age stuff and crystal healing and reiki well even yeah, even so like, like political parties or political things like the reason i think that people are becoming so obsessed with politics today is it functions like a religious community 
and a religious purpose. And identity yeah. and all of that. One that's yeah. built on opposition to the enemies. So Jason Josephson Storm, I was listening to a thing from him recently. He points out the fact that I didn't realize this. He says that people today in the U.S. actually have far more similar beliefs than normally they have throughout history. And yet they're far more politically opposed. And that's weird. So we've we've adopted more common assumptions, but are disagreeing on more of the details than usual. Yeah, it's the, the differences are smaller. And yet those differences have become more important to us. Because mm. you would think yeah. that if we're like, if you had like far left on the one side, and far right on the other side, you would have a huge battles between them. But the problem is, is the two sides have actually apparently gotten closer together in a lot of ways, maybe the last decade or so taken out. They've gotten far closer over the whole course of U.S. history, and yet now we're seeing some of the biggest political divisions and divisiveness in our history. So, like, we might disagree about particular sexual ethic issues or political issues, but, like, our basic framework with which we view the world and reality, our assumptions about metaphysics, ethics, those big-picture things are actually pretty homogenous in the Western world. And we're enlisting the same basic foundation to then disagree on a few specific issues. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's funny that people don't even realize how similar they are to the person on the opposite end of the political aisle. So anyway, I think these have become the reason for this is that these political parties have basically come in and filled a religious hole. That's an idea. And so this idea of like secular societies being able to get rid of religion that religion is the client i don't think they do i think wherever people lose one religion they just adopt something else yeah so this genealogy is just telling a story where we got rid of religion and things were fine but that's not the case I, we, I don't we so. haven't really gotten rid of religion there's still spiritual inklings that might not manifest in traditional Christian institutions like the church, but they're still manifesting in spiritual seekers, new age seekers. They're also manifesting in similar sorts of political, spiritual longings for identity and community. Well, look at some of these secular, some of these other secular nations, to give an even more extreme example. Like I've been using the West, but look at like Central and South America or like India or like sub-Saharan Africa, as these countries get more industrial, they're not losing religion. They're pretty either stable or actually you're seeing church attendances, especially in like some South American countries, you're seeing religion on the rise. Which is just going to show how our particular view of modernity as inherently secularizing or disenchanting or leading to the end of religion is itself a deeply Western view and deeply specific to our history and our version of the story. But other groups can tell different versions where they come into enlightenment or industrial growth and such without abandoning faith it's it's fascinating yeah yeah you say you literally said it's fascinating like it's 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 fascinating i'm just so excited about it i just can't wait for the entire world to catch up and then no more i guess like poverty or like uh orphans or sadness ever are you ready for your pumpkin spice latte i just can't even all right now, I've already had my pumpkin spice latte, actually. I went this with my kids surprising. at 5.30 this morning, 
and they got a donut from Dunkin' Donuts, and I got a pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks. This is gross. Uh, because I, I, my spirit animal should be ashamed. is a teenage white girl. Did you just call women animals, John? How sexist of you. That's just one narrative way to frame that. Uh, there's other genealogies of what I said. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.